Open your Bibles with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And we want to let the scriptures inform us in how we think about today and how we think about the future. Uh, if we aren't careful, we'll get focused on a lot of good things and all the while miss the best thing. Uh, we can... And often do focus on tangibles with regard to church. Numbers, finances, properties, strategies, programs, all good things in and of themselves. Um, The problem is, a lot of times in the church culture, especially the one in which we live, we use, we, we tend to use our own measurements rather than God's measurements for the church. And so we can draw a crowd if we just offer the right things. We can build and we can renovate buildings. We can develop great creative strategies. But we're different. We're we're different than the world. And so we have to measure things differently than the world. We have a totally different scorecard than than the world does, especially when we think about an issue like success. And for the church, our measurement is faithfulness. Our main issue is faithfulness. And so in the ministry of the local church, we, we have, we have one, one aspect that we must get right. One essential can't miss. We have to hit the bullseye. And that issue is not strategy. It's not music. It's not programs, facilities, personality types, style. We must get the gospel right. We must get the gospel right. We must proclaim the gospel of Christ as loudly and as clearly as we can. And so as we think about this moment with so much heritage and so much anticipation for the future, we have to, we have to ask one question here for all of us, regardless of our context in this room. Will we be faithful to Christ and his gospel? Let me ask it a little more confrontationally. Will you be faithful to Christ and his gospel? In 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul presents us with some standard measures, some basic measures for ministry success and faithfulness. And to give you some of the background here, some false teachers had crept into this church that that Paul founded as he preached the gospel there in Corinth. And they were promoting themselves at the expense of Paul. So they were bringing discredit and shame to the Apostle Paul and in doing so trying to lift themselves up. And the Corinthians seemed to be led astray. It seemed as if they were being led astray. In fact, Paul says something later in 2 Corinthians like this, 2 Corinthians 11.4, for if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. He's saying you have people coming in and they're proclaiming the wrong message and you're tolerating it. He couldn't believe the direction that this church was going in. And so he he writes the whole letter of 2 Corinthians to to correct this problem. What we have before us in our text for today in 2 Corinthians 4 is the core diagnostic and the core corrective that Paul presents to this church. Now, this, this problem that the church at Corinth isn't new and it's not isolated for sure. And so we have a very real possibility that we as the church, must guard against and and with everything that we have and with everything that we are. And so our text today reminds us of the essential nature of being faithful to the gospel. We're asking the question, will we be found faithful? So turn your attention to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and I'll start reading in verse 1. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. 
But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Let's pray. Father, Lord, as we turn our minds' attention toward the Holy Scriptures, Lord, we, we know that, that your word is truth, your word is authoritative, and so help us to help us to hear the teachings of Scripture clearly and rightly, and Lord, then help us to obey. Lord, we trust that for those here who don't know you, Lord, that by your grace and for your glory that you can, and Lord, we ask that you will save them today. Lord, for those of us who do know you, help us to, to use the text as a, as a spiritual mirror against which we ask the question, will we, be, will we be found faithful? We love you, Father. We thank you for this word, and we trust in it. We pray it in Jesus' good name. Amen. So in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 1 through 7, Paul gives us three truths by which we measure faithfulness. So truth number one, we must have the right confidence in our ministry. We must have the right confidence in our ministry. He begins here by saying, therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God. Therefore, having this ministry, there's a, a specific ministry that he's referring to, this ministry. So what, what is this ministry? Well, if you, if you, you know that this is all one letter that Paul's writing to the church, it's one continuous thought that he's, that he's encouraging the church and challenging the church with. So if you go back to chapter three, you see what this ministry actually is that he's saying that we have. Look at chapter three and verse four. It says, such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. That, that phrase there in verse 6, he has made us competent to, to be ministers of a new covenant. Points to this ministry that we have, and so in chapter 4, verse 1, he says, therefore, having this ministry, what ministry? The ministry of the new covenant. And so as ministers of the new covenant, we point people to the grace of God by the new covenant of Christ. We don't, we don't want people just to believe the right facts and to say the right things or behave the right way. We want people to know the grace of God that comes only through repentance and belief toward Christ, the ministry of the new covenant. There's a specific ministry here in which we have confidence. Also, there's a contextual ministry. He says, therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we, we do not lose heart. He's writing as a person to a people. He's not writing in some vacuum. He's not just spouting off truths to, to communicate to this church. He's writing into a context. And the same is true for us. We don't declare the gospel in a vacuum. We don't declare the gospel in a vacuum. We declare the gospel in a cultural context. We have a contextualized ministry. And so for Paul, this is what the context looked like. Corinth was one messed up place. Absolutely messed up. It was the fourth largest city in the Roman Empire next to Rome, Alexandria, and Antioch. Diversity abounded among the, the city itself and even in the church. You had multiple people groups. You had multiple cultures. You had all different kinds of races coming together. 
You had languages, you had different economic status going on. All these different things were happening. Even deeper, there was the issue of pagan worship. Pagan worship was rampant in Corinth. You had temples to Aphrodite and Apollo and Poseidon. And it was situated in, in Greece on, with harbors on each side. And so you had sailors who would come in on one side and sailors who would come in on the other side. A very transient community. And so you can just suspect that immorality abounded in this context. In fact, there was a, there was a common phrase in their day that to bring someone from, in, in, in deeper into the darkness of immorality was to Corinthianize someone. And like, isn't it true that we, that we think that it's never been harder than it is right now to declare the gospel? Like we, we always say that. No, this has never been thousands of years have transpired and nobody's had it harder than us. But when you understand what Paul was going through, it helps us to understand there really is nothing new under the sun. It's sin. The issue is sin. It's always been hard to declare the gospel into a fallen world because darkness abounds. And so we can either retreat into a safe, sustainable culture or we can realize that the light shines the brightest in the darkest of context and invade this darkness. So that's the Corinthian context. What about our context? What about our context? And I can speak to this because I am. Livingston, or the parish, is populated by people who know just enough of the Bible to say the right things. Or to do the right things. Or to not do the major wrong things. And still go on throughout life without life really being impacted. Without life really being and being changed. We have some weird sort of spiritual inoculation where we've gotten just enough of the gospel to, to make us think we're okay, but it's not enough of the gospel that our lives are actually revolutionized, which presents itself as a false gospel. You know, we are surrounded by good people. In fact, everyone in Livingston is going to heaven, right? You just, let's just strike out after this service and just go door to door and say, are you going to heaven? Are you going? Well, yeah. Are you going to heaven? Don't ask them why. Just say, are you going to heaven? Everyone's going to heaven. We are an almost Christian culture. We're an almost Christian culture. Everyone is a quote, good Christian. And into this context, which is not a Christian culture, we have this ministry. Chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God. So we come into this context with the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And what God has done is he's given us into our context this entrusted ministry. God entrusts gospel ministry to us. Are you kidding? He's entrusted the gospel to me and to you. For those of us who are redeemed, he said, here, you are the minister of the new covenant. You are the minister of light in darkness. He's entrusted this to us. Our, our response should certainly be one of humility. He says himself in verse 1, having this ministry by the mercy of God. What he's saying is it makes no sense for God to do it this way. But he's entrusted this ministry to us. Think about Paul, the one who's writing this, his background. You talk about a shady character. One who from the history of his life should not be qualified in any way to do what he's doing at this point. Speaking authoritative, authoritatively on behalf of God. He puts it this way in 1 Timothy chapter 1. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Now listen to how he explains his former life. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy. Because I acted ignorantly in unbelief and the grace of our Lord Jesus overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Listen to this. This, this. this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. 
The apostle Paul, the apostle Paul is saying, I am at the front of the line of the sinner crowd. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. If you're saved, if you're truly redeemed, from what or from where did God save you? Remember where you came from and remember how sweet the taste is of the mercy of God. We never, we never move on. We never graduate from the gospel. He has shown us his mercy and entrusted us with this ministry so that we can in turn declare his mercy. And so therefore, since we have this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. We have a confident ministry. We have a confident ministry. Since we have this mercy of God's mercy, by God's mercy, Paul says, we do not lose heart. We are not discouraged. We are not cowards. We do not back down. No matter the context... We don't lose confidence in our ministry because our ministry is the gospel and the gospel is power itself. The gospel is power itself. Romans 1.16, Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel for it, the gospel, is the power of God unto salvation. 1 Corinthians 1.18, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. We have this confident ministry because our confidence is resting in the power of the gospel. So of all people, we should be the most confident. In fact, Paul had every reason to lose heart. His life was not easy. His life was not smooth. If anyone through persecution and hardship should have fallen away, Paul would have qualified. He puts it this way at the beginning of 2 Corinthians. He said, we don't want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction that we experienced in Asia. We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. His his life was in the balance, he says. And then he's coming later and saying, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. And so though gospel ministry at times can and will be difficult, goodness, we don't shrink back in fear and we don't lose our confidence. We represent Christ. We stand for Christ. What can man do to us? Psalm 118.6, the Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? We have a confident ministry because of Christ. And so we must have confidence in our ministry because we represent the Lord Jesus and we proclaim his message. We represent Christ and the message that we proclaim is the power of God unto salvation. It seems as if the Lord has stacked the deck in his favor. And he's given this ministry to us. So if we're going to be faithful, number one, we must have the right confidence in our ministry. Secondly, we must have the right character in our ministry. We must have the right character in our ministry. He's already said because we have this ministry, we don't quit. That's the end of verse one. We do not lose heart. We work hard. We stay to the task. We move forward. We push every day. We don't lose heart because we represent Christ. We don't quit because we can't lose. Let that say we don't quit because we cannot lose. We press on. And then he goes into issues with character. And so because we have this ministry of Christ, we don't manipulate people. That's verse 2. We've renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. We've renounced disgraceful or shameful ways. We we don't do anything in secret. We refuse to practice cunning. We're not deceitful in any way, nor do we tamper or distort God's word. And so the language that Paul is using here implies not just... Not just trickery, but but a, a readiness to do anything and everything to accomplish one's aim. 
In fact, Paul's opponents accused him of being unimpressive in the way that he presented himself. And so, apparently, Paul wasn't all that gracious or impressive of of a public personality. In chapter 10, he records, they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is of no account. He can write good, but he's ugly and he speaks with no authority. Is basically what the accusation was toward him. In fact, he himself says about his own ministry in the first letter to the church at Corinth, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so then he compares himself with these who are bringing all these accusations against him in chapter 2, verse 17, when he says, For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. There's there's a character to our ministry, and since we have character in our ministry, not only do we not manipulate anyone, we don't have to. We don't need to manipulate people. So many of our gospel presentations are merely manipulative ways to coerce or sway people into making some decision that they really don't want to make. Let's be realistic and honest about this. We set the environment. We play on emotion. Let's position ourselves. Let's let's do all these things to, to really kind of seal the deal. And we end up presenting the gospel as if it's a sales pitch. These are all the best benefits. And this just make, this is the best right decision for you to make. We don't need to trick people. We don't need to manipulate people into coming to Christ. We don't manipulate and we don't shrink back from clearly calling out people toward the gospel. And the reason is because we don't have to. We don't have to. For us to try to manipulate people to come to Christ is actually doing a disservice to the one we say we represent. If we think our tactics are necessary for someone to come to Christ, then we are saying that, Christ, you are not the all-sufficient one. You actually need what we bring to the table to help you seal the deal. No, 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 no. Because we have this ministry, we don't manipulate. We don't trick. We don't coerce people. And because we have this ministry, we also don't proclaim ourselves. This is where character comes in. In verse 5, Paul says, For what we proclaim is not ourselves. You see, gospel ministry does not rise and fall on one person. Gospel ministry is given to the church. And the church proclaims Christ, not just one person. And if isn't it true if we aren't careful, we develop these little personality cults? I would just say, oh man, that, that person's just great. He's, he's the best leader. He's the best preacher. He's the best proclaimer. He's the best, all these kinds of things in the universe. And we begin to make idols out of people just like the church at Corinth was doing. And that's why Paul comes and says, no, 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 no. We, we're not proclaiming ourselves. We do not proclaim ourselves. This is a problem that they had that he addressed again in his first letter to the church at Corinth, 1 Corinthians 1.12. Each of you says this, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. You're, you're picking your favorites in the kingdom. True, true gospel ministers, and by the way, that's all of us, not just the one who has the stage at the moment. True gospel ministers do not draw attention to their own clever or eloquent speech. They do not lord authority over others. Instead... True gospel ministers, all of us, draw attention to Jesus Christ as Lord. And so when we walk away from this moment today, will our attention be set on an experience, a personality, history, future, or will our attention be set on Christ? 
It's impossible for us to draw attention to ourselves and glorify God at the same time. We can't do it. We can't draw attention. I cannot draw attention to me, to myself, and glorify God at the same time. We are great at stealing glory. We are glory thieves, aren't we? Like when we do something, what do we want? We want the credit. We are, we are inherently glory thieves. And we, we, we think this about us, about me. We think this about us. We think that we're actually the big deal of the story. And we just need to be reminded from the scriptures that we're really just not as big of a deal as we think we are. And so that's why Paul could say with confidence, oh, no, 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 we don't preach ourselves. We don't preach ourselves. Think about it. Think about this ministry that we've been entrusted with. God could speak his glorious message however he pleases. And he chooses to make his message known through us. Us. Anybody ever feel a little feeble, a little frail? Your life more characterized by failure than success? Guilt, shame, fear, all those things kind of creep in. And you know what? By God's design and for his glory, he's chosen to use you to make his glorious gospel known. Why? So that he is the one who gets all the glory. And our frailty reminds us of our tendency to steal the glory for ourselves and our absolute inadequacy for any glory to come our way. We must minister this glorious gospel with character and with integrity. And may we be found faithful with our character. And so if we're going to be faithful... We must have the right confidence in our ministry. Our confidence is in the gospel. We must have the right character in our ministry. Christ is enough. Christ is enough. And then number three, we must have the right content in our ministry. We must have the right content in our ministry. Look at verse four. Well, verse three, Paul says, even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. And so as the church in this context, we must proclaim Christ to these almost Christian people all around us. We must preach the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. And so our content is very clear. What is the content of our ministry? The gospel. The gospel. We declare this gospel plainly. We proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord. There is only one gospel. Paul put it this way in Galatians 1 verse 8. He says, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Why so much emphasis here on on clarity in, in, in verses 4 and 5? Well, the reason is clear. According to what Paul is writing here, people are dead and people are blind. What do people in darkness need most desperately? Light. Light. People in darkness need light. What do dead people need? Life. Why do people not get the gospel? Because they're blind in darkness. That's what, that's what he's saying here in verse 4. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ. And so if you aren't redeemed by Christ, the Bible says that you are blind. And unless God removes your blindness, you will forever remain blind. How does he remove this blindness? Well, verse 4 tells us he removes this blindness by the gospel, by the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. 
Now the word that he uses here in verse 4 for light, the light of the gospel, is a different word that's typically used in the New Testament. Not, not light as in uh, turn a switch on and the darkness is dispelled, but the word here points to some, some sort of illumination that leads to a seeing and a beholding. There's an experiential reality to this word light here. And picturing it as, as the capturing of light in the eye of the mind. And in fact, Paul's commission in Acts 26, as he's giving his testimony to King Agrippa, he says, the Lord told him, I'm sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, and that they may receive forgiveness of sin. And so here's the point of the text. God must open blind eyes. God must open blind eyes. Our strategies aren't going to open blind eyes. Our buildings aren't going to open blind eyes. Our names aren't going to open blind eyes. God must open blind eyes. How does he do this? How are blind eyes opened? The light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. The light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. What is it that we believe? We believe that outside of Christ you are blind by sin. And you're dead in sin. And according to the Bible, God must providentially move in your life for you to see your sin and for you to see the beauty and the majesty and the glory of King Jesus, the image of God for verse four. And by the spirit's power, you become aware of the work of the cross and the atonement, the forgiveness of sins that's that's offered to us and the power of the resurrection. And then you repent of your sin and you trust in forgiveness that is yours in Christ alone. And then Paul goes so far and says, you want evidence of that what we're actually saying is true? Look at us. Look at verse 6. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We're not proclaiming ourselves, but we're proclaiming our servants. And so when we truly see the glory of Jesus, we're confronted with the depth of our own sin and our own depravity. We realize We realize that we have no hope. That we are done and we are undone. We are wrecked. And it's all our fault. It's all our fault. We see our sin and we see Jesus. And by his mercy we call out to him. To save us. We repent and believe. And this is our plain message. Everything we say, everything we do must be for the sake of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we declare, we declare this message plainly. Let's do good things for people. Let's serve. Let's meet needs. Let's engage. Let's make friends. Let's have parties. Let's do all of these things. Well, let's do all of these things with the primary purpose of making the gospel of Christ known. If we just do good things for people but never get to the gospel, then we send people who've received good things to hell without Christ. We have to get to the gospel. This is our message. We declare this gospel plainly. And then in the content of this message, we also declare this gospel to people. You say, well, that's the no-brainer of the day. Of course you need to declare this to people. But Paul says here in verse 3, if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled only to those who are perishing. But he doesn't say just because they're perishing, we don't proclaim the gospel to them. No, the God of this world has blinded their eyes to keep them from seeing the light of the glory of the gospel of God. And so we proclaim this this message to people. We are in the business of declaring the gospel to people. 
And look, we need to realize and embrace the fact that when we proclaim the gospel, we will be made to look like fools. Wait a minute, you mean to tell me that I'm a sinner and everything in my life is marred and characterized by sin? And because of that sin, I'm a just recipient of the wrath and condemnation of God? And that by believing on God's work of redemption through the person and work of the Lord Jesus, by repenting of my sin and believing on his work and the cross of resurrection, expressing faith toward him, I can be saved and be made right with God? Yes, that is exactly what we believe. And to the unbelieving, darkened mind, it's, it's, it's absurd. It's absurd. But to the mind that God is bursting it with light into. It's the most glorious message a person can hear. To hear, you have offended God. And you stand rightly under His condemnation. But He has done everything necessary to make that relationship right. There's nothing you could do in and of yourselves to make your way to God. And so God came to us. Came, born in this world, lived a human life, word made flesh, John 1.14, and then suffered the most agonizing death any person has ever suffered in the history of mankind or ever will suffer, and went into the tomb and then came out of the tomb triumphant. you got to believe that. Repent and believe, and you can be made right with God. What a gloriously absurd message. What hope. What confidence. And we declare this message to people. To people. The people that we work with every day. The people who live under our roofs. The people who live across the street. The people who live across the world. We proclaim this message to people. But we do it with confidence. Because in this message, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Look, you're not going to get it right every time. You're going to blow the presentation sometimes. Which... Goodness, how freeing is this? That the power is not in my presentation of the gospel. The power is in the gospel itself. And so we declare this gospel to people. People who are almost Christian and populate our communities. People who think they're okay. But they're not. People who have a, a tinge of Jesus, a, a touch of spirituality, but, but nothing that, that's radically redefined their lives. That's our context. It's, I believe, after having engaged in various contexts across the world, is one of the most difficult contexts for us to declare the gospel into. And church, this is where God has us. For that purpose, to declare this gospel to people. And we declare this gospel with power. We declare this gospel with power. Our commission is clear. We proclaim the light of the gospel of Christ into the darkness of people's lives. And so we invade darkness. No, we don't back down from it. We have the light. Why would we back away from darkness? No. No, in the presence of light, what does darkness do? Darkness flees. No, we have the power of the gospel within us. And then he uses this, this illustration here in verse 6. For God who said, let the light shine out of darkness. 
His whole point there is the one who has the power to say, let light shine out of darkness and make light happen is the one who empowers us. In the beginning, God said, let there be light. And what happened? There was light. There was light. That seems to be incredibly powerful. I've never been able to speak light into existence. And what Paul's saying here is the the same one who says, let there be light and there was light, is the one who shed the light of the gospel into our hearts. And therefore, he empowers us and light wins every time. And then this this moment of calibration comes when when we think about our content in verse 7 when Paul writes, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Earlier in verse 5, he said, we proclaim not ourselves, but Jesus is Lord, and we are your servants for Jesus' sake. Servants is a nice way of saying slaves. We, we, We serve you for Jesus' sake. We have this treasure in jars of clay. I said just a moment ago, we are not nearly as big of a deal as we think we are. That's what Paul is saying here. We are jars of clay. The value is not in the container. The value is in the content of the container. And this treasure, verse 7, that he's put into us is the gospel ministry of the new covenant. And the content is more important than the container. You pour the container out and you get the contents. And this treasure is in us. Is in us. So what's more important to you? The container or the content? What do you want to be known more by? All the great things that you have done? Or the great thing that God has done in Christ? What do your co-workers, your family members, your your classmates know about you? All your accomplishments and your successes? All of your family, all these tangible ways to identify you? Or do they know you by the content that's in the jar of clay? We declare this gospel with power because we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God. And not to us. And church, this, this frees us so much. This free, this takes all the pressure off of us. This was all the pressure on God, who is perfectly capable to handle it. He has the power. And so back to our initial question. Will we be found faithful? Will we be found faithful? As Christians and as a church, If we're going to be found faithful, we must have the right confidence. Our confidence has to be placed solely in the mercy of God. We must have the right character. We have to do the right things, but not just do the right things. We have to do the right things the right way. And for the right reason. Far be it from us that we would disqualify our message by our behavior. We want to do things the right way. And we have to be all about the right content. The one trumpet that we have to blow louder than any other trumpet is the gospel of Christ. In its simplest form, it says, you're dead in sin with no hope of being made right with God. But God in his kind providence and his deep well of grace has accomplished everything necessary for you to be made right. So repent of that sin, forsake that sin, and believe on Christ. 
This is incredibly simple. There's no need for us to manipulate anyone in this moment. If you don't know Christ, there's, we're not, we're not gonna dim the lights, we're not gonna get some mood going, we're not gonna just coerce people and, and try to cajole people into doing something that otherwise you're not gonna wanna do. We don't want, we don't wanna sway you into doing something that the moment you hit the doors, nothing is different about you. We want the glory of the gospel of Christ to so wreck your life that you are forever changed. And here's why. Because He alone is worth it. He alone is worth it. And because he is worth it, church, we must be found faithful. We must be found faithful. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we know, according to the teachings of Scripture, Lord, that the gospel really is the power Lord, the message of the cross really is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are saved, it is the power of God. Lord, we confess that by our own thoughts and even by our own methods, Lord, functionally sometimes we we just act like the gospel isn't power enough. But your word is clear. The power is in the gospel. And Lord, by your mercy, you've made us ministers of this new covenant. And so may we be found faithful. Lord, many many churches represented in, in this room, coming to think rightly about this day and this moment. Lord, but give us grace to think higher and deeper and greater. Give us grace to think toward the beauty and the majesty and the glory of King Jesus. Lord, we are glory thieves, and Lord, we know our culture as one where everybody thinks they're okay. Lord, give us the confidence in the gospel and by the gospel for the gospel to confront this culture that you've given us, that you've placed us in, you've planted us in, and to to do so the right way. And guard us, Lord, in proclaiming the right message. Lord, we confess for those of us who are saved, Lord, that that unless you, you were to move on our lives, Lord, we would forever be satisfied in our sin. But by your kindness, for your glory, you called us out of that sin. You made us new in Christ. We're no longer dead, we're alive. We're no longer floundering around in darkness. But we live in the light. Thank you, Father. Lord, for those who, maybe after hearing the gospel through song and hearing the gospel through preaching and then as we declare the gospel together through the Lord's Supper, or still yet are not saved, God, with confidence and with boldness, we ask that you save them. Lord, grant to them the privilege of believing on the Lord Jesus. Lord, we ask that that would happen today. That they would be so miserably unsatisfied in their own sin. Realize their hopelessness. Realize their desperation. 
of their own life. Lord, and that, you, that they would call out to you to save them. Lord, do that for your glory. Do that for your namesake. And we will praise you. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.